This is the Anatomy of a Scream Pod Squad Network. Welcome to The Thing from Another Medium, the podcast about cross-gender adaptations. I'm Adam. I'm a non-binary literature nerd who loves movies. And I'm Maeve. I am a trans femme film nerd who reads books uh, sometimes. And today we're here to talk about Bird Box, the Netflix movie directed by Susanna Beer, based on the book by Josh Mallerman. And because Mallerman is a man and Beer is a woman, that makes the movie a cross-gender adaptation. And we're here to talk about the book, the movie, and everything in between. All right, and I guess we should get right into it. The book, uh, Josh Mallerman's debut book, he was not really an author at first. He was a musician. Like, the back of the book literally just says, oh, he plays guitar in this band. And the band is, I think, called The Highly Strung or The Highly Sprung, one of those two. Have you listened to any of their stuff? I I looked at their Wikipedia page, and it just didn't really sound like a band that I'd be interested in. That's fair, that's fair. And the book, I wasn't interested in it when it came out either because it was still in the like tale of the comet of the huge post-apocalyptic boom of the mid-2000s, and I just like didn't need any more of that in my life. But when I sat down and read the book for this, I actually had a pretty nice time. I thought it was a very, very well-written exercise in tension. Yeah. The tension is easily the best thing because a lot of the prose in the book, especially like near the beginning, is like, you know, very workmanlike, definitely a first author novel. It was using like sort of outside observer type prose while at the same time, so much of that first chapter just being the inner thoughts of Mallory, the main character, it kind of threw me off for a bit. Yeah, I, I see what you mean by that. I agree that the prose isn't very exciting, but I also agree that the decision to make the entire story narrated from the internal thoughts of the character, even though it's sort of third-person limited as a story, it means there's a certain amount of things you can and can't do in terms of the tension. You get a sense that you're not as tightly connected to Mallory as you might be, especially since the story keeps going backwards and forwards in time from the start of the apocalypse and the portion of it where she and her kids are going down the river, which the movie adapts very faithfully, along with adapting a lot of other stuff faithfully. And some other stuff, you know, takes liberties, but Honestly, in my opinion, if an adaptation doesn't take any liberties, it's a boring one. Like, if I wanted to just, like, read the book, I'd read the book. I really dislike grading adaptations by faithfulness and faithfulness alone. Oh, definitely, and I don't think we'd be able to have this podcast together if either of us felt differently. True. But yeah, you're right. The movie does adapt a lot faithfully, but the changes it makes, to an extent, they're kind of necessary, because... The book is about a race of creatures, for lack of a better term. And if you see them, if you look at them directly, then you go insane. And that means something different for everyone. Usually it means like you try to attack everyone around you and then yourself. You just sort of turn omnicidal. You can't really fathom what you're looking at, apparently. And... That's a really exciting concept to create all sorts of tense and scary situations in a book. But in a movie, it means there are a lot of logistical problems you have to tackle in terms of how am I going to show what's happening without showing what's happening. Yeah, that's a very literary concept. And with the film, you could either use it as an excuse or you could either toss that out and have like a big moment where there's a creature reveal, or you could just keep having the creatures be subtly off screen and just not being around. What 
Spear specifically does in the film is that whenever a creature is about to show up, you can tell because there's always like a bunch of leaves being rustled and whatnot. And it's almost interesting. Yeah, the thing always like kicks up a lot of detritus wherever it is. And I got the sense maybe the idea is we're seeing part of it, but that part is invisible and we're okay to look at the invisible parts, but there are visible parts and those are what make you insane. Was I just like getting into weird sci-fi brain with that? Well, there is also another thing, which is that you can tell if someone in the film, like they add an effect where if someone sees the creature, their eyes go weird. Yeah, they get weird irises, weird colors. And I think that's an interesting decision, especially when they start sort of wringing tension out of that. But it's really, really powerful the first time you see it, where they have this sequence invented for the movie where Sandra Bullock, Mallory, the main character, her sister, she sees one of the creatures while she's driving Sandra Bullock around, and you get this very long, like, she's looking straight down the barrel of the camera, and she instantly goes from zero to crazy, and her eyes change. The CGI is very good for what it is. And immediately the car crashes, with Sandra Bullock only barely surviving. And I think that's one of the better changes the movie makes because it's a really quick way to communicate both the effects of the creatures and like why this apocalypse would spread so quickly and be so horrifying and to really hammer in, like, this is the moment Sandra Bullock's life ended and it just ended like that. Yeah, and the other... A major thing is that, like, the book hides the idea that it's creatures, or at least prolongs the discovery that it's creatures, and instead goes for, like, a myriad of other theories that is considered, like, society breaks down. This was a very interesting book and film to consume during a worldwide pandemic, by the way. Yeah, it's it's aged very well in some ways. Like, it's not quite on a level of contagion, but it's definitely approaching that in terms of stories where the primary focus is what happens when there's something scary out there. How many different ways will people react to that scary thing? And honestly, I preferred the way the book handled it, which was that slow burn, that slowly ringing tension, slowly watching people just sort of fall apart. And, I don't know, like, having it just be, like, one huge explosion of stuff, which I get why you feel like you need to do it in a film because you want to keep people's attentions, but honestly, I feel like it wasn't very artful in how it was achieved and whatnot. I see why you say that. To sort of go back a little, the main two threads of the story, because... Both the story of the movie and the book are non-linear and they cut between the two is one, the apocalypse begins, Sarah Paulson's eyes go crazy, Sandra Bullock, she finds her way into a safe house with a bunch of other people who sort of banded together when this all happened. And then it cuts between that and four years later, five, did they say? Yeah, it's five. The kids are five when the whole thing is going on. Yeah, cutting between then and five years later when she has children now because she's pregnant when the world ends. Now there's a calamity, and that's when she's trying to get them to a place that's more permanently safe than the situation that they've been in up till now. And so you get those two different flavors of tension, the sort of striking out, adventurous, going out on a perilous journey tension— and the more sort of theatrical parlor room mystery story, all these characters are together, who knows what's going to happen kind of tension. Yeah, and the ensemble in the house is bigger in the film than it is in the book, and pretty much everyone in that house is a name actor. The ensemble is really good, 
lot of entertaining stuff going on in all those performances, but at the same time, like, it does kind of feel like a waste of some of those actors. Like, you have B.D. Wong there. He's dead after three minutes, which, you know, sucks. The character is dead before the sort of action begins in the book. We only hear about him afterwards, and I think it is a good decision to keep him alive for just long enough to have his gruesome and very well-aged death happen on screen where he looks at it through a camera and looking at it through a camera still kills him anyway and that was a good decision to dramatize on screen and i think in general it's easy to see why they went with a bigger ensemble and name actors because just by being on screen they do a lot of the requirements of characterization because actors are good and they can communicate stuff that isn't directly in the script yeah and i see why it is an effective scene it was definitely effective as i was watching it because wong is kind of introduced as he's the leader of this sort of safe house it's his house and having him be the first one in there to die that is definitely something that sets stuff off but also I like having B.D. Wong in things. I wish he was around longer. I think you're supposed to wish that to a degree. It's one of those cases where, oh, we get this guy who you really like, and then we kill him, and you don't feel great about that. I mean, yeah, but like, how often is B.D. Wong in like a movie that gets this much attention? That's true. And instead, you're stuck with John Malkovich as the biggest asshole left on the face of the earth, quite possibly. I mean, everyone loves Malkovich, everyone loves Malkovich being an asshole, but at the same time, like, I feel like Malkovich is, like, the biggest caricature in the movie, which says a lot when David Dastmalkian shows up for, like, eight seconds as a character credited as Whistling Marauder, (laughs) and he is exactly what you'd think based on that. I don't even know if he has a line. I love David Dastmalkian so much. I love him in anything he's in. I love it whenever he shows up, even if he's just playing a creep who gets killed instantly. Like Tesmalkian's one of the one of like our great character actors right now, and I've seen stuff where he like genuinely gets so much more to do and it's so much better than seeing him in like this kind of nothing role. Like even the Ant Man movies give him like a few jokes, you know? Yeah, he's got a wide range. And Malkovich, I remember actually looking up after this movie, and I could find maybe three film roles. There were more on stage where he didn't play just a complete loathsome person. He's got a type. And yeah, he looks really good as a guy who'd be confident enough to like establish a good foundation of being an asshole. And he sounds and he behaves sort of high class enough that it's hard to just shake him off immediately he will show up and be a jerk in your movie and it's interesting when he does that here for a character who's not in the book at all and he's just there to sort of make things more tense no matter what whether he's like almost certainly trying to hit on sandra bullock even though she's pregnant and he insists on her drinking alcohol or he's like insisting on abandoning half of the house for the favor of the other half just so he doesn't have to do anything. Yeah. And like there are other people in that house who are assholes. Like you have Machine Gun Kelly and Rosa Salazar playing two characters. Uh MGK's character is named Felix. The Felix character in the book is around the entire time. He's a very responsible dude. He spends basically all his time like calling phone numbers to make sure that they can find people. And in the movie, his first line is basically him alluding to being a drug dealer, which, you know, you expect that kind of thing from MGK. And the Rosa Salazar character is like, was in training to become a cop, so she has a bit of animosity and then they end up fucking and then they run away that is their role in the film and yeah that's probably partially a consequence of having this larger ensemble so you need more ways for them to get out of the picture even if it's not necessarily them being murdered by the whatevers or then going insane it's just like them 
deciding they're fed up with this and not wanting any more part of it. And I think that's a clever way to adapt what you mentioned, the way the book has a lot more of a wider range of perspectives on how you deal with calamity and how you emotionally and mentally react to this kind of severe, all-encompassing global trauma. Yeah, and you also get, speaking of global trauma, you also get that oh-so-very-clever Trump joke. Oh god, what was that? I don't even remember. Malkovich is drunk in the grocery store, and he's like, We are making the apocalypse great again! Yeah, that whole scene I kind of wanted to talk about in the book, there's a sequence where they realize we're out of food, we got to go find more. And that means going out into the wider world where these like make you crazy creatures could come upon you at any time. So we have to figure out a way to do it without any look at the outside world. And in the book, it lasts for days. It's harrowing. You get this like really careful account of them walking step by step, house by house, and encountering all the terrible sights in there. And in the movie, they paint the windows of their cars and use their GPS, and it actually goes pretty smoothly. Yeah, there's some really good tension in the SUV sequence, and that was probably the point in the film where I was most engaged, because Outside of Malkovich, that had basically the likable ones there, except Olympia, who is played by Danielle McDonald, who was coming off her Patty Cakes breakthrough at the time. And McDonald, of the supporting cast, she was the MVP for me. I see why you say that. And to sort of just like finish up this track before we go on to that, the scene where they where they take the SUV is different from the book scene where they have to do it on foot. And I think that reflects a big philosophical difference in the book and the movie that I think comes back to the book is set in the suburbs of Detroit and the movie is set in Southern California. And that means there's no, a lot um, not, about... Not Southern... Not SoCal. It's set in Sacramento. Oh, okay. I didn't realize it was that specific. Yeah, they shot, yeah, they shot it. Yeah, they shot it in NoCal. Oh, okay. Yeah. Ladybird territory. I wonder if she survived. Probably not. But yeah, moving the set it setting from Michigan to NoCal is just like, I imagine that was for tax reasons. Oh? I imagine that decision was made because, in part because California had better tax breaks. Like, Bird Box was not like a mega budget movie. It had a ton of stars in it, but the movie did, but the movie cost like a little under 20 million. And yeah, I, I do, I do see what you mean, but I think it creates this difference in tone and like i say philosophy for the book there's a big philosophical difference between having it in, in california and having it in the midwest yeah the author said it in michigan because he's from michigan it's writing what you know and i guess people who work in the film industry know california better than they know michigan yeah definitely and there's also, like, rivers and stuff in NoCal, so I guess that was the other reasoning for it. But also, at the same time, like, you kind of sacrifice some of the personality of the book as a result. Yeah, I, I think there's a lot less of the sort of fearful relationship with nature and the idea of going outside at all as something terrifying. I don't think that idea is as palpable in the movie as it is in the book, because in the movie, like, you've got this sort of, like, Silicon Valley tech house, like, kind of thing, where there's this enormous fridge with all this food in it, and that's never really an issue after they go to the supermarket. There is not a supermarket to raid in the book, but in the movie, one of the people there, who's Lil Rel Howery from Get Out, he worked at a supermarket and he can get them in, and, like, not everything in the book has to make it in with the adaptation, but it definitely was a conscious decision on one level or another to have this greater ease of passage, I guess you'd call it. And also to, I guess, kind of seemingly justify the supermarket raid, there's the 
fact that they get the birds at the supermarket. Yeah, the, the birds yeah. that I think go into the titular box. I don't know how long birds live. It's the same birds in the book. And of course, like as people keep showing up at the house, like there's like in the book, originally the Sandra Bullock character and her sister and the character of her sister, Sarah Paulson, are roommates as well as siblings. And in the book, Mallory lives alone and Sarah Paulson just shows up to do a welfare check as well as bring her to her appointment to get an ultrasound and another difference in the book is that Sandra Bullock's character just finds out she's pregnant as the apocalypse starts go going on when in the film she's already a bit of a ways along when the apocalypse really explodes yeah that's a big difference and i think it reflects a general like shift in the time scale of things things happen a lot quicker in the movie than they do in the book and that makes sense because it's easier to compress time in a book in that way without like heavy montages and making it seem like you can relax the tension a little when you're getting into a status quo in a movie it's easy to just like let everything turn up quick and have it reach a boiling point indeed and that is kind of part of why I found the film going whole hog just like less interesting. Like I'm not saying the book is perfect at all. It's like, you know, it's it's a it's a six out of ten airport novel with like mediocre prose and whatnot. The characters are kind of thinly sketched, they're a bit thinly sketched in the film too. But at the same time, like, I did find the build up and the tension the best part of the book, and I don't think the movie has as much of that as a result. But speaking of things you can only do in the movie, let's head into your cinematography corner. Welcome to the cinematography corner. Uh, I like cinematography. Adam gave me a segment to talk about it. So here we are. So the cinematographer for Bird Box was Salvatore Totino. No relation, as far as I can tell, to the pizza roll empire. I'm a little dubious of that, honestly. Like, all these people who got their start in Hollywood because of connections. Like, Totinos are in a ton of movies. As far as I can tell, no relation. His Wikipedia page is not that big. The thing is, Totino's uh, most well-known credits are pretty much all with Ron Howard. Like, after uh, Don Peterman died, uh, Totino became one of Howard's go-to guys. He shot all the Da Vinci Code movies. He shot Cinderella Man. Totino is, you know, he's fine. He's a workmanlike cinematographer. He hasn't really shot anything that's really blown me away. And this movie continues that trend. Like, you know, it's well lit. It's well shot. There are scenes in the house where the light placement is interesting kind of highlighting the architecture the scenes inside the car with after they black out the windows and cover everything with newspaper i thought that was a very interesting way of lighting the scenes but at the same time it's i guess in part because the movie is fairly low budget and in part because the locations are so limited i can't really say this is like a movie that blew me away on a cinematography level and like a bit of outside trivia when i was watching the credits for the movie because i always watch the credits of a movie after i finish one there was a director of photography listed for additional photography um for those who don't know how film sets work pretty much every movie has additional photography sometimes they're called they're also known as reshoots and reshoots are kind of a dirty word with some people but for the most time most of the time it's like pre-budgeted like a week of pickup shots in case like something went wrong. Like, I don't know, like a hard drive gets corrupted or something. They just go and pick up some shots or they're in the edit and they see something that should be in there that they didn't shoot on the day. That kind of thing. And however, you can't always get the exact same crew for additional photography. So sometimes you get like, you know, a different cinematographer for reshoots. And in this case, the director of photography for the additional photography on Bird Box was Oliver Wood, who is also a solid, well-known workman-like cinematographer. And not a Harry Potter character. 
Yeah, completely different. However, what makes Oliver Wood different from Salvatore Titino is that Oliver Wood has shot an actual masterpiece, and that is Face Off. Ah, okay. So, what I'm saying is, that was the most interesting thing I could talk about. I I noticed, I'm not sure how interesting it was to you, but, like, I definitely noticed that they made very careful use of two different color palettes and temperatures and, like, styles of lighting between the two timelines. So it was very easy if you just, like, put this on whenever to tell which timeline you were looking at. Like, oh, uh, it's everything's really colorful. There's a lot of light coming in. That means it's the past. It's the beginning of the apocalypse. Oh, now everything's a lot more muted and gray and overcast. That means it's later in the apocalypse, the five years jump. And then at the very end, they do a like, huge saturation, tons of green, tons of light, like every color of the rainbow to show that there's a happy ending. Yeah, you know, that's kind of what they did with uh, the most recent Little Women, except it was more artfully done there, which I feel like is in part because Greta Gerwig is a better filmmaker, at least so far, of what I've seen of her stuff than uh, Susanna Beer, which I don't want to be too harsh to her because I have heard incredible things about her Danish work. Brothers is apparently great. Um, her TV work I've heard consistently very good things about, too. I had a lot of fun with The Night Manager. But at the same time, like her English language stuff doesn't really connect like things we lost in the fire which was written by my actual nemesis alan loeb that movie basically went over like a lead balloon her film serena based on a book my sister read once that movie went over like lead balloon and bird box is probably her best received english language movie and even that is like sitting at like the 60 percent mark on rotten tomatoes you know and outside of its like big boom of becoming like a thing everyone watched and memed to hell when it was released a few years ago like hasn't really stuck around that much so i wonder if there's like just a very specific mode in which she works in best and i just haven't been exposed to her in that mode yet it's definitely worth thinking about but to sort of go back to the discussion of the movie one change I thought was interesting that was definitely her decision. Like, there's a character in The Night Manager who's, like, one of Hugh Laurie is the, like, kind of Bond villain sort of figure. He has several goons, and the one who's always the most sort of odious and fearsome is played by Tom Hollander. Your boy! He is my boy. I love him so much. He He can do no wrong for me. And in the book, there's a character who sort of shows up out of nowhere, just sort of like white and American and rumpled like everyone else. And he sort of really throws a wrench into the works of the operation of the house because it's the beginning of the apocalypse timeline. He sows a lot of distrust and fear. And then I wasn't sure if the character was going to be in the movie, but sure enough, he bursts in and he's Tom Hollander using his natural British accent and I just plotsed. You were talking beforehand about how much surprise Tom Hollander will work for you. Yeah, like in the Mission Impossible movie where he's the the prime minister for some reason, like perfect surprise Tom Hollander. I know you're going to see that Kingsman movie where he plays three major world leaders. Yeah, he's Kaiser Wilhelm, George VI, and maybe one of the presidents? I don't know. I'm seeing it no matter what. I have an own distaste for Matthew Vaughn, but him casting Tom Hollander in three major world leader roles, that is kind of like the kind of like just put your dick on the table casting. Three Hollanders, that's almost all the way to the Netherlands by now. <laughs> but yeah he, he shows up he sows distrust because the book goes quicker he has to do it a lot more quickly and he also has to reveal that a lot more quickly that he actually is the like weird eye socket version of 
the secret zombie infectee guy. He was he saw the creatures ages ago, and he's been driven mad since the beginning. But he was a different kind of mad, so he's been able to disguise it and infiltrate this safe house because that's what he wants to do. And I don't think it works as well in the movie, and I think especially it doesn't work well when the way you find out is he opens his very serious briefcase and he just takes out all of his monster drawings for the audience to admire. Yeah, and all the monster drawings are the most like generic, shadowy monster shit you can draw. Hand to God, what I was thinking of was the Dark Tower movie with Idris Elba. Ah, oh, man, if only that one was directed by a woman, we'd have some thoughts. We'd have some thoughts on that. Hey, we got multiple King episodes. Maybe we can get into it. At Idris Elba, you want the tower? <laughs> oh, man. I wish that movie went over better, because I think it has its charms. So do I, because I've never read the books. I'm sure if I read the books, I'd go, yeah, fuck that movie. I did read the books, and my response to that movie was, hey, you know what, there's some good stuff in here. <laughs> but yeah, that's the surprise Tom Hollander. And the other big surprise that happened to us near the end, having read the book, like, have we talked much about Trevante Rhodes this episode? I don't think we have. Yeah, that's the first time we've brought him up, which is a shame because he's amazing. Like, Trevante Rhodes should have been the big breakout star of Moonlight, and people tried to make him the big breakout star of Moonlight. Like, he was cast in The Predator, and which came out a few months before Bird Box. Unfortunately, The Predator was a big steaming pile of dog shit. Otherwise, I feel like Trevante Rhodes would have become, like, one of the big upcoming Hollywood guys. And yeah, I see what you mean about how you would have thought he was the breakout star because we haven't discussed him because he is the like smart and competent and kind character, the one who understands like, yes, Sandra Bullock should be listened to and also deserves some help. And it's a character who really needs to be there to like anchor the movie on someone other than Sandra Bullock, give you someone else who you can even consider trusting, and he does a great job. And it was a big surprise to us, especially having read the book, when it turns out the reason for the five-year time skip is Tom Hollander reveals he's evil, he takes out his monster drawings, he sort of attacks everyone in the house and this corresponds with both olympia and mallory sandra bullock and danielle mcdonald having their babies at the exact same time there's all this bedlam there's all this calamity and in the book trevante rhodes dies in the movie he stays alive and he and sandra bullock have five years of sort of relatively stable, loving, presumably real sexy post-apocalyptic life together, raising their kids. Yeah, and yet the kids are still just called boy and girl, even though Trevante Rhodes is around clearly wanting to give them names. Yeah, in the in the book, it's just her because because the character's dead and... She doesn't need to give many names because she doesn't need to talk about them to anyone else. It, like, makes that whole thing, like, very strange. And also, as we were talking about with the Tom Hollander thing and we, what we alluded to, something in the book, I mean, something in the film that I don't think was in the book, in the film, it's stated that if someone who is very mentally ill sees the creature, they become sort of under its spell, and that person's whole focus in life becomes trying to get as many people to see the monsters as possible. And I don't know about you, but I found that incredibly problematic and bad. Oh, go into that more, please. Yeah, it's like. People who have mental illness are already stigmatized, and, like, especially in film, like, the mentally ill is, like, a very easy villain, like, a way to, like, you know, sort of like a cop-out for everything. 
I, and, I see what you mean. And like when Tom Hollander's telling his story before the twist is revealed, he's like, the psychos came and they made our entire house look at look at it. And everyone's like, what do you mean? And then he like, the psychos, they had this on them. And John Malkovich is like, that's a ward for the criminally insane. I guess they are having a good time right now. Yeah. Good Malkovich there, by the way. And I do see what you mean about that being problematic. I think the intention wasn't really in that direction. I don't think it was meant to be that cut and dry. Maybe that's because I've read the book, which makes it a lot more of an ambiguous, like... I've also I've also read the book. Yeah. The fi- I, f- I feel like the film makes it so much less ambiguous in a very bad way, which I guess we can pin on the screenwriter. Like, the screenwriter of the movie is Eric Heisserer, who has written two masterpieces. Uh, oh, right. You mean Arrival and Street Fighter, The Legend of Chun-Li? No. I genuinely think Final Destination 5 is a masterpiece. Oh, wow. Okay, cool. So he, yeah, he adapted this, and I do see what you mean, and I agree that it should have been as clear as it was in the book that this is just one of a of a wide possible range of reactions and of course it's the worst possible one for the heroes because this is an exercise in tension heiser even wrote a movie this year that i thought was like a really smart version of like a kind of dumb as shit idea like he co-wrote uh, the bloodshot movie with vin diesel and i feel like that movie really went for something interesting there that was probably in part because Heiser did um, heavy rewrites on it. At the same time, though, like you can blame it on a couple things. You could blame it on material. You can blame it on some other stuff. You can also point out that Heiser's uh, writing credits are like all over the place because, like, I love Final Destination Five and I love Arrival, and I think Bloodshot is pretty good too. But he also wrote the Nightmare on Elm Street remake. He wrote. The Thing prequel, he wrote Lights Out, which I know people liked, but at the same time, that movie also apparently had a very problematic um, portrayal of mental health. So, I guess Bird Box was a movie that didn't really play to his strengths. I think we're in this kind of thorny territory, and that means it's a good time to head on the highway to the gender zone. It's the gender zone! Gender Zone. Welcome to the Gender Zone. A cross-gender adaptation means there's always a lot of gender stuff to talk about, and that's especially true when you're talking to two analytical gender queers like us. And the Gender Zone is the space for us to really dig into everything about that. And I think a good place to start, segueing from this issue of, like, treatment of the mentally ill is the notion of motherhood because this is a story about a pregnant woman who has to deal with so much of this terror and then it's sort of cross-cut with a mother who has to deal with all that terror with her children sort of as externalized figures and people in their own right yeah Something that I've been meaning to say, and only just now I feel like I've gotten the opportunity to say it, is that Sandra Bullock fucking rules in this movie. Bullock is one of my favorite, like, you know, movie star caliber performers. Like, she's been in some absolute dog shit, but I don't feel like she's ever been bad. And I thought so many times while watching Bird Box, you know, just that feeling of, damn, she is really strapping this movie to her back and doing her best to get it up the mountain. And I can't blame her. I think she's absolutely wonderful in the film. And part of it is her doing her, you know, Sandra Bullock hard-ass kind of deal. Like, you know, that's part of her movie star identity at this point. But at the same time, you also kind of get a counterpoint to Bullock's sort of idea. Like, when her character is introduced in the movie, she's very ambivalent about motherhood. You know, she's just doing her painting. Her character in the book just has an office job, while in the movie she's introduced doing art. 
specifically art about loneliness and seeming and her seemingly being ambivalent about being lonely and ambivalent about having a child, which in the book was the result of a one night stand and in the movie is not really touched on. And even though the pregnancy is a big part of like what started the circumstances that got her into the initial safe house with everybody, she's still kind of ambivalent about it until she meets the movie's other pregnant character, Olympia, played by Danielle McDonald, who is an absolute beacon of joy in the film. Absolutely wonderful. And McDonald's character, who gets a few scenes with Bullock where they kind of discuss themselves and their personalities and their backgrounds in life, and McDonald's character had a military husband, and she was genuinely incredibly excited about being a mother and she kind of had a bit of a sort of like romanticized view of motherhood she talked about how she really wanted to name her kid um after a disney princess and that kind of thing while bullock didn't even care to find out the gender of her kid which granted gender is a construct and really what people say the gender of a baby is when it's born is what genitals it's going to have she didn't even care to figure that out she just wanted to keep doing her thing, you know, painting and whatnot, only having a mini fridge in her home. And as those two keep having scenes, there's only, there's like two big ones in my mind, which is their first conversation and another one after more shit has gone down, where McDonald starts wishing that she was as tough as Bullock because she talks about how she didn't really have a challenging life. She says her parents always gave her love and spoiled her, and when she met and married her husband, he kind of did the same thing. So she was afraid that she wasn't touch tough enough to survive in the apocalypse. And Bullock eventually has to go, like, being tough isn't that isn't all it's cracked up to be, and that kind of thing. And because those are my two favorite performances in the movie, those are the two scenes that really worked for me outside of the tension scene in the SUV. Or at least the, those are the character scenes that worked the best for me. Because that is kind of where the movie comes alive, when the movie is allowed to like take a break and be quiet and just sort of get into the character stuff, which there is not nearly enough of because the movie starts out so fast and is barely and in so many of the suspense sequences is not really giving any room to breathe except for the SUV sequence, which is why I like it so much. And I guess the climax as well. But, like, you get the first opening sequence, which is the cold open that is from the book of Sandra Bullock being like, we are going on the trip. It is going to be rough. I need you to do, 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 do this and that. And the editing in that sequence after they leave the house, it's just so quick. It's so rushed. They are on the water so quick. And then later there's another suspense sequence where they run into someone who isn't wearing a blindfold and starts to assault them, which in the book is probably the scariest and most tense sequence because the guy is just kind of verbally trying to get them to take off their blindfolds, and it is absolutely terrifying. And in the film, it's just a badly cut fight scene. It's such a letdown. And yeah, sort of adding on to that, the whole section where it's her and the kids in the boat on the water, that section is in the book a lot more internal because obviously it's a book, it's third person limited, and the narration and hearing Mallory's thoughts allows her to be a lot more rounded and ambivalent about how sort of single-minded and focused she is in her treatment of her kids and like she knows she has to be hard on them to get them to survive, and she's trained them for this moment for years. But at the same time, she constantly worries about being too hard on them and making them hate her. And you can't really capture all of that on film, although, of course, Bullock is giving a really rounded performance. And so I see why you focus on the character of Olympia and their interactions where she can get some more of that ambivalence and that warmth out. Yeah, and, you know, it's not really fun to, like, go through a movie like this where it does kind of feel like, despite what I said about the beginning, I am kind of, like, really sticking with changes that were made that I didn't think were for the better, which 
is not all of what I want to do with this, but I also feel like a big part of this is that the filmmaking itself is not really up to par when it matters. And when it is good, it's great. And the main thing I'm taking away from this is that I really do want to see Susanna Beer's other work, her foreign language films, well, her Danish movies and her TV work, because I do think there is talent in there. It's just the movie itself, whether due to its script or due to the movie being a bit outside of her comfort zone, doesn't really work for me. I see why you say that. I think from my perspective, I respond well enough to the tension. It's easy for me to overlook a lot of the other flaws in both versions of the story because they're very much there. As I mentioned, I've seen The Night Manager. I haven't seen other Susanna Beer stuff, but what this conversation has made me want to do is look into similar stories that deal in tension in a similarly broad way, using multiple styles of tension, sort of playing one off against the other. It's made me really appreciate how much you can do with that, how many modes of emotion you can wring out of that, how many like points about the way people act you can make with that. Like both versions, I think the tension is overall done really well, and the payoff in both versions when they reach the end and it turns out the real safe house is a school for the blind, it makes it just so much sweeter in both cases. Yeah, it's like kind of like an obvious payoff, but it works. And I will say this for the movie's favor. The movie before it went to Netflix was originally in development at Universal. And you can kind of still see elements because Scott Stuber was the exec at Universal who was trying to put this into development. And Chris Morgan, the longtime writer of the Fast and Furious films, who has a first look deal at Universal, he's still a producer on this. And the thing is, when the movie was at Universal, Universal had attached Andy Machete, who directed It and its sequel, which is a giant pile of dog ass to direct. And I am glad this version of the film exists, only because I know Machete's version would have been worse. Okay. I'm not really sure if I can say one way or the other for sure. But to sort of get back to a couple of gender things, I kind of want to delve into that big change in the movie, the fact that Bullock's character, to her warmth, she doesn't get to be as warm in the movie because... She gets to be around Trevante Rhodes more. She gets to be part of this weird version of a conventional nuclear family with a man and a woman and their 2.5 kids. And where the 0.5 is, one of them is Olympia's kids and Olympia's been turned into a monster, feral, whatever. Who jumped out of a window and committed suicide, but uh, gave yeah. her baby to Bullock right before it happened. Mm -hmm. And because of that, all you see of her is her being more sort of prickly and pragmatic when she's talking to Trevante Rhodes and the kids about raising them. And this is shown nearer to the end of the movie, and it's in service of the end, like we said, so she can let it all down and be kinder to her kids at the end. But I think it's a harder needle to thread in the movie when you aren't getting that stream of consciousness about her self-doubt all the time. Yeah, I feel like what really kind of brings that part of it down is that because of the framing device and how everything is stitched, you know that bad stuff is going to happen. And having him be around with the kids for so long, it kind of makes everything feel a bit less urgent until he dies and like they had barely started planning the trip when his character dies and like at the beginning of the book when she's talking about the trip it makes it known that she had been training those kids for the trip for a while while in the film it's the same kid actors they look the same in both sort of versions of the timeline it makes me think that like i don't know like a week maybe two maybe like a month at most has passed yeah, I see what you mean. And to go into the gender stuff, 
the reason they're able to escape is because David Dasmalkian and his gang of whistling marauders, as you say, show up and Trevante Rhodes has to fight them off and keep them occupied while Sandra Bullock and the kids get to the river and start their journey on the boat. It was interesting to me the sort of role reversal from how this usually goes in this kind of movie, where Trevante Rhodes gets to be the more sort of emotional and nurturing parent to these kids, and Sandra Bullock is the one who taught them how to fight and how to survive. And when that death scene happens, it's not a role reversal, it's more of like, the faithful comrade who sacrifices himself for the good of the, like the team or whatever. And I thought that was an interesting interplay. Like I get what you're saying and I agree with most of it. So yeah. One last gender thing. It's like it's hinted. The reason Malkovich is such an asshole is that his wife dies in the first stage of the calamity immediately before Sandra Bullock gets into the house. She actually dies trying to rescue Sandra Bullock, and she succeeds, but she ends up sacrificing herself. I guess that's an interesting counterpoint to what you were saying about her and Olympia, like these two people who are nurturing to each other and can let and like can bring out the best in each other and envy each other and make each other stronger. And the opposite of that is when someone you've shared your life with leaves you and it turns you into a John Malkovich character. Didn't really think of it like that. And I wouldn't have thought of it if you hadn't brought up Olympia. So I guess, yeah, that's why we got this podcast. True. And I think on that note, this is a bit of a nice moment to wrap up. So where can people find you? On Twitter at I am a something. And you can find me on Twitter at Adam Bumas, A-D-A-M-B-U-M-A-S. And while you're looking at stuff, you can check out all the other great shows on the Anatomy of a Scream Pod Squad Network on Twitter and Instagram at A-O-A-S underscore X-X. And other than that, have a medium day. The Anatomy of a Scream Pod Squad.